Welcome to Comfortably Uncomfortable, Not Another Running Story. Thanks for joining us. We don't do small talk here. When we get outside and slightly uncomfortable, we get real, and we aim to continue these conversations here on this podcast. My name is Megan Fanning, and I'm the owner of Zendurance Now Coaching, and I'm joined by Sean Meehan, one of our coaches. Let's talk, let's get uncomfortable, and let's see where the conversation goes. The information in this podcast represents the views and opinions of Zendurance Now only. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice or treatment. We may be right, we may be wrong. Either way, be a solid human. If you're thinking about making a questionable decision, please seek out a qualified medical or psychological professional. I'm so excited. We have a special guest. We have a special guest today. Why? Who we do we to- have? We totally do. Well, I don't know. We could do like we could do like twenty questions. Um, who who is this? Uh, who is this mystery guest that that we've invited on our on our podcast? Well, he's a friend of ours, so that means he's awesome because we don't like people that are jerks. And what else? He's a homesteader. He's a doctor. He's a chief he's- medical officer of a hospital. True. True. Very important. <laughs> In my own head, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome, welcome, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So what's going on with you today? You're you are sitting in a very scenic background. Yeah, I'm hanging out on my deck. Uh not much going on. We had uh, you know, it's the fourth weekend, so we had in-laws around lots of grilling and fires and you know, doing the family thing. So when I, I was on my hike this morning and, and headed through my neighborhood, our neighborhood looks like a war zone. There's, there's firecrackers and stuff everywhere, all over the place. And I'm kind of wondering, like, they're going to clean all this up, right? I mean, I can't really see my neighbor's house, but they're all over the street. They're, man, it's like people partied hard um, last night, I guess. So I, I gave, I had to give our dogs sedatives because they were freaking out, but. See, I have a hunting dog when there's a big oh, bang, yeah. he gets excited. Uh, so he wasn't freaking out, but uh, um, he was assuming something fun was about to happen for half the night. And you have to train him that way, right? You train him with those sounds? Uh, oh, yeah. So that that would be what you call, uh, if, it's, if a dog reacts negatively, they're gun shy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can't have it with a hunting dog. Um, although that's pretty easy to train, just get one of those old cap guns, you know, with the paper that we had for kids and you, you know, so they still make those. Um, and, uh, um, every time you feed them, uh, you fire the captain cap gun. Um, and, uh, that mm. starts to go away and eventually he starts to associate it with food. Um, and then, uh, um, when you're actually out, uh, actually hunting, uh, the prey drive is so high. Um, it, I don't know what it would take to uh, uh, to break his concentration, but a gunshot's not it. Hmm. And what age do you start training him? Um, so most uh, most hunting dogs, the things you want them to do is already in there genetically. Like it's instinctual; they know. Like I didn't teach him the point; he just did it. Um, 
the so most of the training actually is just basic discipline um, hmm. you know heal sit stay um that they respond when you want them to do something and that's 90 percent of it which you just kind of do every day anyways um with any dog as long as you're you know I always think the most interesting thing about different hunting breeds is their their innate ability to do whatever it is, whether it's like point or retrieve, or they're going to maintain a certain uh, radius around you, or they're going to go out fast and then come back and like double check on that. Like that innate ability, like I run, um, my buddy has a Vishla and my buddy and I run with him all the time. And the Vishla always stays within like, a 10 meter radius of him regardless like he'll go off and like chase a, a rack or a scroll up a tree or a chipmunk into a hole whatever the case may be but it's always like a 10 meter radius like around him yeah yeah they're i mean he was you know three four months old and he's pointing chickens on our property and, and what kind of dog do you have i forgot it's a german breed called a poodle pointer okay it doesn't have like it's not so P-U-D-E-L, I guess, is German for dog. Okay. Could be wrong. I don't speak German. Um, but uh, um, he looks a little bit uh, like a German short-haired pointer. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, um, uh, he's sort of a chocolate brown, and it's got a little bit of a beard. Because we, um, we have two dogs. One is a German Shepherd mix, and um, that's Riggs. And she is a... We call her a big, dumb ball of love. She's got an insane prey drive, but she's really just dumb. Um, all she wants to do is give love and get love. This is the dog that has tried to make friends with porcupines twice because she just uh -huh. wants to play with them. Now, um, now our other dog is a um, half lab and half red bone coonhound. And I really believe that she could be a search and rescue dog um, if if we trained her. Um, she has that, she has that innate ability. Like she's, she's always walking right here. She's super smart. Um, you know, she figured out how to open, uh, Bill's truck doors from, from the outside and the inside. Nice. Um, she's almost too smart, almost too smart for her own good. Um, but so we always have that search and rescue thing. Like I have that in the back of my head if, you know, if I ever go in that direction, but that is a lot of training, um, in a lot of time that I just unfortunately don't have right now. Yeah. Um, so, but it's, that's always on the, that's always on the back burner. She's a, she's a great, she's a great hiking dog. Um, yeah. It just has those, she needs a job. And, and at the, you know, at the, when I'm talking to the dogs and I'm, you know, praising them, you know, with rigs, I'll always say, Oh, you're such a good dog. I love you. And then with Maggie, I say, thank you for being a useful dog today. You were super helpful. And her tail starts wagging. She gets all excited. But if I talk to Maggie in that tone that I talked to Riggs, Maggie, just give me a look like, what are you kidding me? What are you talking yeah. about? <laughs> Working dogs make great family pets, be it hunting dogs or German shepherds, mm -hmm. whatever, because a big part of what they were bred for is doing what you want them to do, making you happy, um, which is, you know, why they can be working dogs. But then it makes them, that's why like labs and golden retrievers became so popular. Mm -hmm. All they want to do is make you happy. Right. Right. Yeah. 
And, and, and both of them are, are really good with the kids. Whenever the kids, you know, get upset or get stressed out, the first thing they do is run to run to the kid's side. And again, Riggs will just want to, that's all. She just wants love. That's her life. You know, her love. But Maggie is, will sit there and watch, see what's going on, take in the situation. Sometimes she won't go close. Sometimes she will. It's really interesting to watch um, just the difference between these two. But yeah, they've taken over our house. So. so you touched on it a little bit, Josh. How many animals and what animals do you have on your property, being as you are a, I guess, homesteader, pseudo-homesteader? Would you, how would you describe yourself in that regard? Um, uh, I don't know, maybe a hobbyist. Uh, I, like to, I like to do things myself and lo- know how to do lots of things, even if they're generally considered completely useless. Um, for instance, lately we've been playing with axe throwing. <clears throat> uh, yeah, my uh, my wife and I went up to uh, uh, one of those outfits that you can you know rent for an hour, and they show you how and throw axes or whatever. And thought you know, wow, this is entertaining, and the kids would love it. But they won't let you register unless you're 18, and so uh, um, you could buy like a throwing axe on Amazon for like 30 bucks, and uh, um, built a uh, target in the backyard and. Uh, um, Oh, that was one of the things we all did yesterday. Um, it's really it's funny that you're saying that. We just yesterday, Bill and I were talking, and we we just said to each other, we should set one of these up in the backyard. It's so bizarre because I didn't I didn't know that that you had done that, but yeah, literally just yesterday yep. we were having the conversation because we said it'd be really fun for the kids. Like it's something you know, just Ooh. something to do outside. Yeah, it's super fun. Um, and stress management too, you know, for yeah. them. The, uh, um, but as far as animals go, uh, we have two dogs. Um, we have six ducks. Um, we have 11 chickens. And we have eight uh, Icelandic sheep right now. And what do you do with what animals? Um, so one of the dogs is just a pet, but I hunt with the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, Remy, the uh, poodle pointer. Um, the uh, ducks I like to have around in the summer just because it's entertaining to have them in the pond. Mm-hmm. Come out here on the deck in the morning with the coffee and they're splashing around. <laughs> um, the and I imagine you get, chickens, you get eggs from those ducks? Uh, we usually don't keep them long enough to do that. Um, okay. so yes, you can, and we have in the past. Um, and ducks are a little harder to manage because they don't lay in the same spot reliably. I mean, we've had ducks that'll dump an egg in the middle of the pond and you can mm. go out there and see it on the bottom. Um, the, uh, but we have had duck eggs in the past. Um, the, um, uh, the chickens uh, combination uh, uh, dealing with the ticks uh, and providing eggs um, uh, and keeping the um, disease burden for the sheep down. Um, uh, so fewer worms and things like that um now how do you keep your chickens from getting eaten by you know all the natural critters this is the issue that we have in new hampshire um just you know critters. oh okay (laughs) yeah well uh, yeah a shotgun was uh we had a last year we had a slaughter uh we lost maybe a dozen chickens i'm not sure exactly yeah um and it turned out it was two different fox uh Mm -hmm. and uh 
Um, both of them caught a load of bird shot in the rear end. Um, and uh, um, turns out uh, when that happens, they can jump really, really high uh, and they never come back. Okay. All right. Um, so, but it did, I mean, we got, we had one chicken survive last year. Um, okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, she's, uh, uh, the, the chickens that do the best are the ones that hang out with the sheep that don't really leave the sheep. Um, and so they are afforded, uh, uh, some level of protection because. And, and how do your kids do when you lose an animal or, or when you lose the chickens, are they bonding to them or they, how do you deal with that? Uh, so they, not really. Um, and, okay. uh, we've been doing this for a long time. And so like, for instance, last year, um, uh, we had somebody, uh, staying with us, uh, for a couple of months, uh, doing some medical training, uh, in the area and, uh, um, uh, would afforded Kim and I, you know, we could go away for the weekend and, you know, she would watch the farm and the kids and everything like that. Um, but lots of stuff that she didn't know or appreciate. And, uh, um, so one day they were outside last year, uh, uh, with, uh, Remy and, uh, uh, this woman, uh, you know, Remy pointed, um, and she thought, wow, that's so neat and so amusing. And she's just watching. Um, and if Remy points something like one of our chickens, um, you got to interrupt that because in the natural course of things, the next thing that happens is that bird dies. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you just sit there and watch, um, eventually he'll break that point and kill the chicken. She did not, uh, cause she didn't know better. Uh, Remy killed the chicken. Um, and, uh, um, the, our house guest, uh, is becomes a sob, uh, sobbing mess. Um, completely unused to and uncomfortable with, and oh gosh, what did I do? And now this chicken's dead. And, uh, um, Kim uh, comes home uh, and pulls in the driveway uh, and uh, uh, there's our house guest uh, standing in the corner, basically uh, sobbing. Uh, and there is our daughter who would have been 13 at the time uh, um, butchering the chicken. So <laughs> good. <laughs> well, not good for the house guest, but, but good for your daughter. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, I think yeah. that's, I think that's a really important thing for kids to learn. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but I don't, I don't normally eat meat. Um, and really the main reason I don't is just because of where it comes from and, yep. and how it's acquired. And, and I've always given my, you know, my kids the choice, you know, and we, we do have, um, two meat eaters in the house, but I'm very careful about where it comes from. But I have always wanted my my kids to understand that meat does not come from a package in the in in the grocery store, right? And um, and I said, you know, if if Daddy or I were were hunters, that that would be a totally different story. I think that's a much more um, respectful and and healthy way, you know, to acquire to acquire our food. Yeah, that is a big part of our motivation, uh, and then. At the same time, we've had a number of experiences that pushed us in this direction. So we get, as a general target, 90% of our uh, animal protein, we either raise ourselves or hunt for. Um, and it's not like I have graphs and 
count. That's just sort of a ballpark thing. Um, and uh, um, but we had uh, um, I know Sean will remember. I don't know if you ever met uh, Jax, Megan, one of my dogs. I don't think so. Yeah, so he uh, was a Shiba uh, and a, a great running companion um, for many years. And uh, um, at one point in time, he nearly died. Um, and the vets uh, were convinced it was cancer. Um, and uh, so we went down this spiral with that veterinary service and turned out it was actually a food allergy. Oh, wow. And uh, so we were basically poisoning him with conventional dog foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and we managed to figure that out. And, uh, um, and he recovered um, and lived for like another seven years. Um, so there was that. Um, there was Corinne's diabetes. Um, the, um, early on when we moved out here to Vermont, um, we got a, uh, CSA, um, and had all of the vegetables showing up every week, um, in such high volume that you find yourself doing things like eating salad for breakfast. Um, and after a little while, um, uh, tried vegetarianism, veganism, uh, because I was like, wow, I feel so much better. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it turned out it wasn't the meat. It was the lack of processed stuff. Yep. Most of what we were eating did come out of a box from the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just a lot of experiences that pushed us in this direction and where it matters more and more and more. Like, where did that come from? And, and, and I agree with the respect thing. Um, I don't like butchering the animals that uh, we uh have here or or even killing animals when we hunt um but uh i feel better if i did it and i know how it went and how that meat was handled uh and it's a respect thing makes sense to me yeah i mean i'd go hunting with you i'd eat what you know i'd eat what you hunt and it's it's been interesting in since i mean i've had a number of surgeries but since the last two Um, I've lost, um, I've lost a ton of weight and it's mainly, you know, it's mainly just been muscle mass from healing and trauma and stuff like that. But finding, finding what kind of nutrition works for me this time around has, has been really important. And I'm, it's very important to me where our food is coming from. Um, but you know, my nutrition needs have changed. You know, and as we were talking about, you know, with, you know, and with my kids, their, their nutrition changes. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, we've eaten this one way and this is what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. And I think Sean and I and Sam too have with our, with our athletes, you know, we've always said like, if anybody tells you that you have to be vegan or you have to be paleo or you have to eat like this, just run the other way. Cause they're idiots. It doesn't work like that. But what we try yeah. to do all three of us is, is help people discover what nutrition what nutrition works for them. I mean, Sean, you and I have gone back and forth on salt consumption. If you had, if you had the amount of salt that I did, I think you'd be like, I don't know, you'd, you'd probably look like, uh, you know, Patrick, you know, from, from SpongeBob. I mean, you'd be, you'd be huge and bloated. I mean, it'd make you grossly, it'd make you grossly sick, but it's something that I need more of, you know, for some reason, but these are the things you just learn over time, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's also turned out to be uh, a useful uh, uh, skill set around here because 
other people value that meat and where it came from. And so we actually barter it a lot. Um, the, the last sheep we acquired, uh, we traded for about 35 pounds of meat. Oh, wow. And do you shear them and use, and use the wool too for anything? Do, do people want that? We haven't used the wool for much. A few people have done little bits here and there. Um, but, uh, the Vermont is kind of flooded with wool. And so it is not, okay. a, um, a valuable commodity up here. Um, but we do, when we, when I butcher, uh, uh, we'll take the hide, um, and process that. Um, and we use them for, uh, like throw rug kind of things. And how'd you learn how to do all this? Did you teach yourself or were you raised doing this stuff? Uh, so I, I grew up doing some hunting, um, and you know, so we'd butcher what we'd kill and I knew how to do some, um, then, uh, um, uh, some of it, I just learned on the internet, YouTube, buying books, etc. Uh, some of it, um, like I tend to go out and, uh, take lots of courses and, uh, um, uh, pay for like weekend seminars learning how so uh, a couple of months ago i did a um one on uh, stone wall building um mm. uh, just basic masonry um uh but as far as uh, the um the butchering and and so on and so forth i've taken uh probably three courses uh on uh wild game um and uh how to butcher it and uh how to cook it um and have friends that are wild game chefs and do weekend long things and and how do you find time to do all this because you you obviously have a busy career um some of it, a lot of it so the uh the animals we have on the property um we partially choose uh for low input high output um and so uh like our ducks for instance um uh we'll give them a couple of scoops of packed corn um not even every day um uh basically just to keep them around uh mm -hmm. and other than that we more or less completely ignore them except when we're watching them in the pond um the chickens same deal give them a little bit of corn every now and then um the sheep during the summer uh, most days uh you just got to make sure their water tank is full so they have access mm. to water and you can otherwise largely ignore them. They require, so you got to trim the hooves and uh, um, we'll drench them, keep the worm uh, uh, load low uh, about once a month. Um, and then uh, uh, twice a year, shear them. Um, but they're not, they don't require a lot for the most part. And that's specifically why you chose Icelandic sheep, right? Yeah. They're very primitive. They don't, if, if Icelandic sheep, if they are near a, uh, um, a tree or something, if there's big trees in their pasture, you don't even have to shear them. They'll rub their own wool off. So, <laughs> and then we've had them for mm, probably six years now. Uh, maybe even more than that. And the, uh, um, like never had a problem with lambing with any of them. Um, they, they just do it themselves. You wake up in the morning and you have a new lamb. Um, so it's nice. And how often do you butcher the sheep? 
So Icelandics are, um, they, the ewes go into heat um, reliably in uh, early to mid-October. And they won't do it again unless they miscarry. And so we get lambs um, uh, in April or March um, every year. And unless you got a weird, somebody miscarried and then got pregnant again, you don't, it's April or March and that's it. Um, and then uh, we'll butcher those lambs uh, usually uh, kind of mid-fall, um, October, November. And how many pounds of meat do you get out of What's that? How many pounds of meat do you get out of? Um, I will get, uh, for the average lamb, probably 30 pounds of meat. And then the rest you hunt either locally or on hunting trips? Yep. Yep. A lot of bird hunting. We do a lot of duck hunting, rough grouse, uh, things like that. Turkeys in the spring. Right on. And then we'll do, uh, we eat a lot of venison as sort of our main red meat. Um, and uh, um, you can't hunt enough here. I mean, my kids uh, um, eat so much. Uh, we will go through, in the average year, probably about four deer. Um, and you can't kill that many deer around here. There just aren't that many. Um, and you should come, you should come here. We have, we have so many. Yeah. Well, the state has to allow you to do that legally. So there's yeah. that. Um, and, uh, um, and, you know, it's sort of a matter of principle. I don't poach. Um, so we, uh, uh, usually I, I got a buddy who's, uh, uh got a, uh, um, a farm he manages down on the uh, Tennessee, Alabama border. And uh, um, he manages it for hunting and for deer. Um, and so he lets us come down there and call does um, and basically fill our freezer every year. That's what my parents used to do growing up down in Connecticut. Um, my mom is a big gardener, you know, vegetable gardens and, and flowers and all sorts of stuff. But the deer would just decimate our house. It was even worse in Connecticut. So and, and we were on 14 acres, I think, growing up. And I knew, you know, we just knew certain times of the year my parents would let all the deer hunters you know, come in the back. We weren't supposed to go in the woods and mm -hmm. then we wouldn't have a deer problem. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's nice. And then, then it goes, you know, we butcher it ourselves. I know where that meat came from. I know how it was handled. Um, and, uh, and now with the uh, different courses and stuff, I know how to prepare it. So I would like, I would be super interested to mirror you with the butchering process again, as a, as a vegetarian, just don't know that much just because I just, from a, from a learning, from a learning perspective, it'd be really interesting. Well, if you ever want to, uh, by all means, we actually yeah. probably half the time, um, I'm butchering, uh, there's somebody here that wants to see like mm -hmm. what happens, how does this work? Um, and how do you take, go from an animal to, you know, a package of meat? Now with it's great, but isn't oh sorry, go ahead, John. I was gonna say now with all the uh, deer hunting, do you have concerns about the chronic wasting disease and all that stuff? That's that seems to be running more and more rampant. Yeah, so uh, it it definitely is in the back of my head. Historically, I've never hunted anywhere that it's been a problem, although it is 
uh, starting to get into counties that are neighboring the place in Tennessee we go. Um, and so there's sort of a general agreement amongst the three guys, uh, um, my buddy and his brother uh, and I, that um, we're going to start testing them. Uh, I don't, no one ever, it, there's never been a documented case of it's being transmitted to humans. Um, and you've got to figure thousands and thousands of deer have been eaten that have chronic wasting disease. So the risk is almost certainly extremely low. But at the same time, if I knew a deer had chronic wasting disease, I wouldn't feed it to my kids. Right. Is that, I mean, as far as the deer population goes, do you think that long-term that's going to be a large impact on it? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't have a hunting background and I know that that's more of your, but I do know that that is a, a definite concern amongst the hunting population, so. Yeah. So it will certainly impact the uh, age demographics of the herd. Um, so when a deer gets chronic wasting disease, um, it, as a general rule, uh, can still live a couple of years uh, and appear completely healthy. Basically, it just causes a, a slow progressive dementia in that animal, and it's not quick. Um, and so these, these deer are still going to be able to uh, breed and reproduce, um, and, you know, it's probably going to be you know a couple years before the deer contracts it and so you're still going to have three four-year-old deer um all over the place um because it's not a quick killer the um you know the the big trophy animals that people like to go after in like the midwestern states um that's going to be a problem uh because uh five six seven-year-old deer are going to become increasingly rare um but my guess is the so there's lots of animals that have uh, basically adapted to uh, U.S. Uh, culture with our cities and farming and so on and so forth. And, and white-tailed deer are one of those ones that did it extraordinarily well. Uh, they're not going away. Well, it's interesting. So, I mean, I spend, I don't hunt, but I spend a ton of time on trails. And depending on where you are in the the area that you're you're exploring, running, whatever the case may be, the animals act differently, right? Bears act differently, deers act differently, especially like the ones you're saying that adapt to suburban environments, right? So like, I know if I'm on an area like a reservoir and there's no hunting allowed in that area, that the deer will come almost right up to you, non-aggressively. Yep. And then if you're in a different area that's more vast and hunting's allowed, like if I'm running somewhere in Vermont, you might not see animals at all, even though they're arguably more plentiful than the area that I'm I'm in, because they will scatter from humans. It's the the intelligence and the um, adaptiveness of the animals to the confines of the area is always so amazing to me. Like, yeah. you know. so Sean, in in our in our little circle right here, turkeys. Okay, because we don't hunt, but we have so many turkeys. Um, and it's to the point where we, you know, they come to our yard a certain time of day and we can also see when the babies are born because the babies are all small and fuzzy right now. Yep. And we'll see, we'll see them grow. I mean, we literally watch these turkey families. We have so many turkeys in this area. Um, I was delayed. I was on a 911 call. Um, the ambulance was delayed when I got there. Um, some, you know, one of my, my EMS 
chief said, what took you so long? Did you get lost? And I said, there were turkeys in the road. And he yeah. said, why didn't you just, I said, he said, you couldn't just run through them. I said, no, I said, it would have actually damaged the ambulance. I mean, they literally were block track, you know, blocking traffic in the middle of the road. So, um, so yeah, so maybe we need some more turkey um, hunting down here in New Hampshire. <laughs> The problem in neighborhoods is uh, uh, it's hard to uh, yeah. kill those animals legally. I know, I know. And yeah, and when like charge firearms in a neighborhood. Right when bow. I was driving, when I was driving to the hospital, I was doing the early morning shift, and so I would leave here, you know, about six o'clock in the morning. Um, and same time, same corner, I, I would know to slow down because that's when the turkeys were crossing the road. It, I mean it. Let you could, I could have set my watch by it, you know. Yeah. That's the same thing, though, that you're talking about, Sean. Mm -hmm. These animals have figured out, basically, other than maybe the occasional big neighborhood dog, there is nothing uh, that, and they learn how to dodge cars, and they are fine. Yep. And, and, and ambulance sirens and lights do not deter them. They were like, screw yeah. you well, guys. <laughs> they didn't care. They didn't care. Just, just so everyone knows, Megan double flipped off uh, both me and Josh. I did because because that is exactly no one, no one can like, see. That's literally, but I said screw you, so I wasn't <laughs> being totally rude about it. But I swear that's literally what the turkeys were saying to me, like and and I just kind of sat there. I mean, I wasn't gonna fight it. What am I gonna do? Yell at a turkey <laughs> recently with those big turkey populations where they're doing things like attacking mailmen and such. Uh, <laughs> There was a, a, a story I read, uh, I think it was on Martha's Vineyard, uh, where there was turkeys causing a problem of some kind, and a, a local cop uh, shot one six times with his handgun. And then, of course, somebody uh, who had you know watched these turkeys grow up in his backyard freaked out, actually got in trouble for assaulting the cop after the cop shot the turkey. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it, that sounds it, very Martha's it, Vineyard, to, to be honest. Yeah. So in the parking lot of my control center that I work at, we had a couple turkeys that had set up set up roost there, whatever the case may be. One would be perched um, 40 feet on top of the building, which most people don't realize that a turkey could get up 40 feet in the air, and uh, would be perched there and would literally kind of drop down as people were entering or exiting the building and attack. And then there was one that would circle the parking lot and attack people as they got to their cars. The best part though, was the Turkey would see its reflection in people's shiny cars and start getting super aggressive to its reflection. And yep. that was, that was always super amusing to watch, but yeah, turkeys can be super, super aggressive towards people as they, <laughs> as they become more and more integrated into this, the society and the You imagine you're just, you're just, Walking into work, right? Do 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 do, and a turkey like just just drops yep. on you. I mean, it'd be really funny if it didn't happen to me. I'm laughing, thinking it, thinking about it happened to somebody else. To be honest, but <laughs> we had to get animal control out there because I mean, what are we gonna do, right? Like as yep. far as that goes, so we got animal control out there, and <laughs> I mean, they they were literally attacking people. So yes, yeah. Um, um I've, I've been on the trail. And actually in West Hartford, around the reservoir, where they were blocking the trail and they weren't moving. Like when I came closer, they came closer to me. Um, and I was like, all right, I guess I'll wait for you to pass. Yeah. The big town could hurt you too. The uh, um, Those are not small birds and they've got spurs that'll get sometimes a couple inches long. Really? 
heels. So they got a little spike of bone um, sticking out of their heels. And uh, um, yeah, that they could hurt you. Mm. Good to know you, but you might end up in the ER with a bunch of lacerations and puncture wounds. Yeah. So, so hey, that that leads us to, leads us to the next side of Josh. So tell us, um, tell us about um, tell us about your ER and what you do and where you are. Uh, so uh, I'm in Central Vermont. Uh, I'm an ER doc, uh, um, well, at least uh, to some degree now. Um, I uh, actually trained down in uh, um, close to Sean's neck of the woods at Bay State. Uh, in uh, Western Mass, um, that would have been finished up there in 04. Um, and then did the full-time ER gig for years and years, uh, for a while out in, uh, um, Minnesota, got in-laws back this way and that pulled, uh, proved a big draw. So we ended up back out East. Um, and then, uh, um, slowly have transitioned into the administrative thing although the uh, um the big jump came when uh corinne got diagnosed with diabetes um the uh, um a, a full-time administrative job had been offered to me and i wasn't wasn't certain that was the route i wanted to go down there's a lot of parts about it that are not necessarily much fun um but uh it was offered and I, you know, said, all right, well, I'll think about it, talk to my wife about it. And then diagnosed my daughter with diabetes that weekend. Um, and, uh, uh, put her in the back of an ambulance with my wife and my son who was, you know, six, seven years old at the time had to, uh, sleep in my call room while I finished my shift. Cause I couldn't leave because I was the only ER doc on, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, spent the last rest of the night thinking about life choices and, uh, um, walked into my boss's office on Monday morning and said, you know, whatever you got, if it's nine to five, I'm on board. I don't, we don't need to talk contracts. We don't need to talk benefits. I'll take it. Um, and, uh, that's where I've been ever since. And, and I, I really hear that. Cause I think I, I still feel like I'm at the phase in, in both of my careers as a, as a therapist and a medic where, um, where I still need to be in the thick of it to get better, especially, especially on the paramedic side. Um, and, uh, I, you know, the, the more stable nine to five ish jobs, um, would be really good right now. And Bill and Bill and I definitely juggle with the kids cause, cause there's a lot going on, but at this, at this point in my career, um, I still need to learn a heck of a lot more. And that means, you know, putting myself in, in areas and in hospitals, um, you know, that, that have, um, lots of trauma and lots of needs. So, but yeah, it's yeah. tough. It's really tough with kids. Yeah. I still do a few shifts in the ER every month, uh, to keep my toe in the water. And there's definitely times I would rather be doing that, but, uh, this is better for my family. Yeah. And, and how did, and how did COVID affect you guys in Vermont? Um, so the disease burden in Vermont was actually not that big. Um, uh, you know, of course there was lots of terror in the initial days of COVID, but nobody <laughs> didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, um, the, the general freaking out was fairly universal. Um, 
because nobody wanted to end up like the you know the pictures and stories and videos you saw in places like New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, however, uh, the uh, social impact um, uh, was just as bad as anywhere. Um, and uh, um, like thinking about it, looking back, you know, I had these, and I think everybody had these ideas like, oh, you know, well, it's going to be a pain and I'll develop a vaccine and after a little while we'll get through it and whatever and it'll be fine, which is a very uh, um, uh, simple and uh, um, shallow way to think about it, um, you know name a uh, pandemic throughout history uh, that wasn't an existential event for everybody that lived through it. Um, uh, these things by definition uh, change societies and are giant landmarks in, uh, in history. You know, everybody that lives through these kind of things remembers and why it didn't occur to me at the time that this was going to be an existential thing for everybody. Um, uh, Obviously, I know that now. Um, it made uh, hospital administration a nightmare. Um, it is not a fun uh, uh, time to try to run a hospital. The uh, um, the supply chain issues. You know, you think about you know all the PPE and the uh, workers running around in like garbage bags because they didn't have gowns and stuff. And we didn't have those problems at my hospital. Our materials management crew is unreal. Um, and early on, when we started talking about COVID and what are we going to do and when it going to do when when is it going to be here, whatever, they started stockpiling things uh, before anybody else started stockpiling things. Um, and so we never ran out of anything significant. Um, so we did well there, um, but that there were still the stresses of all of that and still the conflict. Um, and then the workforce stuff um, has been an absolute nightmare um, because everybody in the country had this giant existential event and as people, everybody started asking themselves, is this really what I want to do? Is this really where I want to be? Um, and for lots and lots of people, the answer was no. Um, and, you know, that family across the country suddenly became, all right, it's time to go and it's time to go like now. Um, and for a lot of people that were nearing retirement that are just kind of doing the thing they always did and pulling down a paycheck or whatever, but they didn't really need to. And they were asked the question, you know, is this what I want to do or would I rather, you know, play with my grandkids? Are you having uh, staffing shortages at your hospital? And did you have a number of, of people leave? Um, as a result of being burned out. I mean, I know you're, you're in a you're in a nice place. You're in a smaller center, so I don't know how it would have affected you guys. Oh yes, uh, everywhere. There's nowhere that doesn't have staffing shortages, and part of that is just the economics and the supply of people because hospitals started to get short, and then they needed more travelers or locums. So travelers, nurses, or locums providers mm-hmm. and physicians. And when you're short and you have a critical service, uh, you're willing to pay for it. And uh, the staffing companies realized this opportunity and started to gouge. Um, and so you've got, if you've got a young nurse, for instance, um, that is working at, uh, you know, in central Vermont here, and they're not tied down, you know, they don't have family or, or what have you holding them in place. 
uh, and uh, um, you know, there are places out there that will pay them, um, you know, sometimes four or five times an hour, um, you know, what uh, um, they're making here, uh, they leave. Um, you know, and then, the, uh, you know, all the people that retired early, because they, they, you know, we're certainly not immune to that and have an old population in Vermont in general. Um, and the existential stuff, I mean, I had a, a physician um, somewhere in the middle of COVID, I don't remember exactly, um, uh, that uh, walked into my office one day and said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And by anymore, like, I don't even want to be, you know, a doctor anymore. Uh, I don't want to touch patients anymore. Uh, I quit. I'm out. And, and how old was he? How long had he been a doctor? It was a woman and she was oh, in her thirties. Oh, wow. So wow. yeah, like it, this changed people like changed yeah. them and it'll be indelible for, you know, the rest of this generation. Um, and you know, at the same time, the burnout thing and the struggle, because it just made everything harder. Um, you know, one of the things that my wife and I struggled with in the last year is uh, our kids' school system uh, uh, had an impossible time trying to maintain the bus lines, um, mm -hmm. people quitting, people getting COVID, so on and so forth. And so it was not unusual at all uh, for us to get a text from Corinne saying uh there's no bus on the way home and she's got no plan for a ride and what are we going to do same with us we had the same thing yeah yeah and uh um you know when if you're a nurse or or whatever and you're in the middle yeah. of school and you get that text um you know what do you do and so the the level of people's angst and the bad behavior um because everything seems shitty all the time and every day you got a new thing like that, you know, you're a nurse, you're in the middle of your shift, you can't leave, but your kid is at school and there's no ride. Um, what do you, it's just this giant mess. Um, eh, it's going to take country a long time to dig out and healthcare a long time to dig out. And we're doing better than a lot of places. Um, but boy, it's still not been fun. And what did your hospital do? Do you mandate um, your staff to have vaccines? Do you give them a choice? How do, how do you guys handle that? So uh, this is something that we saw coming. Uh, so the, the feds mandate vaccines for uh, healthcare institutions over certain sizes. I think it's like 100 employees or something like that. Um, and uh, uh, so we started a campaign early on, like, Here's all the information and, and had all kinds of informational sessions with staff and, and uh, here's what you need to know and uh, um, got people comfortable uh, with the idea way before the politics came around. Okay. Um, and uh, um, so it. So the trick was getting you guys getting out ahead of it rather than letting the fear set in and the political right. flames right. make those. Yeah. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. All of COVID management. It's, don't wait for anybody else to tell you what to do. Right. Figure out what needs to be done uh, and, and do it first. Um, and the vaccines were, I think, like 98% of our staff is vaccinated. And I think we had, so we, we employ about 700 people. And I think we had like 
two or three resignations over it. And I was working in Vermont last year, um, and I'm working in New Hampshire this year. And it was so much easier in Vermont. I mean, I was tested every week, and not that I. I mean, I think they might have requested me, but it was it. There was no reason not to. It was set up right there. I'd just go into work. You'd do the swab. Um, the vaccines were much more available um, than than in New Hampshire. I mean, just at that time a year ago in New Hampshire to get tested uh, and, and even just trying to get the vaccines for my kids. Uh, yeah. It, it was really tough. And and I saw the differences between the two states. And Vermont's not that far away from me. Yeah. Uh, and it just seemed, it just seemed insane. Um, and our state wasn't bad for, for management. I mean, we did okay, but, but Vermont was doing a heck of a lot better in my opinion than we are and were. Well, I think, doesn't that come yeah, down I think to... From- I was going to say, doesn't that come down to, like, caseload vice, like, I mean, the population of where you live in, in New Hampshire is a lot of overflow population from the Boston area, right? Like, going mm-hmm. up, whereas yep. whereas you get that, and Vermont doesn't have that overflow of anywhere. Like, I mean, the, the biggest cities are, you know, Burlington and, and Rutland, and those are by mm-hmm. far small cities compared to, I mean, any of the major cities in New Hampshire. And I think just that that difference makes a, a huge difference in regards yeah, to- Yeah, that's absolutely true. Vermont has a number of native advantages um, in terms of doing things like managing a, a pandemic. But now, the, Wi-Fi, the Wi-Fi out there is killer. And I have to tell you, dri- driving around <laughs> Vermont um, and trying to, and, and just trying to navigate whole God, and then roads would be shut down. But the only way you know the road is shut down is when somebody tells you. It's not like we'd get. It's, it's it was really. I still don't think I could I could safely navigate through Vermont, and I feel like I really rely on on people that have been there for for a long time and know the area. Um, that I often felt like we were going in circles. We'd be in you know in the in the truck for forty five minutes. I'm like, did we go anywhere? It still looks exactly the same. Like we had, we we had one we had one call, and I'm in the back, and the driver slammed on the brakes, which is not normal. They would never do that with without telling us because you know things can happen. And I'm thinking, what the heck? And I looked out, and a cow had just stopped in front, just sort of jumped out into the middle of the road, and just we we were stopped, sort of like what I said with the turkeys. And yeah. I was like, oh yeah, cows. Okay, now I get it. Welcome to Vermont. So, Josh, you and I have talked a little bit um, in regards to COVID and how we're moving into an endemic phase of it um, and where we're at with that. Now, as far as going forward, we've talked a little bit about, like, the war on science and the greed of of maybe the the vaccine companies and, like, where where we're at with that. So I, I was curious as to, like, where where you think we're headed like what's the frequency of vaccination like boosters any of that stuff and any of so uh a lot of that is hard to predict um and a lot of that is so you're right we're now entering a phase where uh i was really impressed with a lot of the uh big pharma companies early on um, uh, they did a hell of a job and, um, 
got vaccines out and had great transparency. Uh, but of course, uh, this is a capitalist country uh, and people are uh, seeing dollar signs. Uh, and now we have a transition to a phase where uh, lots of times there's, you know, uh, well, you can get this new booster uh, and they can figure out a way to, you know, justify it. Um, when in reality, they're thinking, you know, billions of dollars. Um, the, so that's going to muddy things. Um, and it's going to be supported by a lot of the population because a lot of the population is still terrified. And, want, you know, the second you offer a new thing, they want it because um, they're terrified. And I get that. Um, you know, we're just living through a pandemic. And then the calculus in terms of like what to get when uh, is uh, um, is not as clean as people want it to be. Um, uh, we were talking about the pediatric vaccinations recently. Um, and so uh, the question becomes like, you know, well, what is the goal? Because if, if you're saying, well, are we going to save a bunch of kids' lives? Uh, the answer is no, because they're not dying. Um, and they don't seem to be getting issues uh, to a significant degree like long COVID, et cetera. And the, uh, um, I'm not saying zero. Uh, anybody with Google can find a case uh, in 30 seconds. Um, but the risk is really low um, for kids. However, um, there is a significant societal cost to these kids all running around with COVID uh, because they're the ones that are giving it to the bus drivers who then can't manage the bus system, who then are impacting all these parents who don't know how the hell their kids are gonna get home from school. Um, and so, you know, when you start factoring in like, what does it cost with this many average missed days of work, um, you know, for people with COVID? Um, and then there is the, um, the problem with expectations of the vaccine. So, when the vaccines were originally produced, um, uh, and I'm referring largely to uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, the studies they did um, looked at a reduction in hospitalizations and deaths. Um, and they were phenomenally good at that. And then everybody started to get vac vaccinated. And, uh, um, uh, and then people who had been vaccinated got COVID. And they were like, well, it didn't work. Well, no, it, it was never designed to have you permanently test negative. It was designed to prevent you from going, needing to be hospitalized and dying. They never actually looked at, does this prevent you from catching COVID ever? Um, and uh, um, so, you know, it's like going out and uh, uh, picking up a new pickup truck and then complaining, complaining that it doesn't fly. Uh, well, it was never designed to fly. You're correct in that it doesn't fly, but that was never the plan. Um, and so what I'm saying there is like people's expectations are wholly unreasonable um, with it. And so how are all of those factors going to influence like when we get vaccinated is tough to say. Um, there, There is a... Uh, um, uh, Pfizer Moderna um, version that is coming out that is specific to Omicron and its subvariants, um, which 
from a uh, loss of work time, et cetera, et cetera, I do think would be worthwhile for most people. Um, but I think the, the the other raging problem that that exists is this became political. Vaccines, yeah. healthcare, and science became political, and that that piece just blows my mind. I don't know how that happened, but I think well, I know I know it made it made this so much worse. Uh, and people are afraid, and they're looking for something to alleviate that fear. So is it a politician or is it a vaccine? Which way are you going to go? Well, you've got the you've got the far ends of people's values, really. You've got people that value their own independence and are willing to take risks, and they're not really cared care that much about how they affect other people. Uh, and then you've got people on the other end that want perfect safety, um, which doesn't exist. Uh, and you've got uh, politicians in the middle that are willing to use these things as a tool um, to, you know, garner money and support and votes. Uh, so it sucks and it's stupid. It doesn't surprise me they got politicized. I mean, we're in a day and age where politicians will use anything they can as a tool. Right. Um it's going to make managing this, these kinds of things harder because this is not the last pandemic. Um, no. And I hope that we don't see another big one in my lifetime, but it wouldn't shock me. The global climate is perfect for pandemics. So. So I don't mean to backtrack a little bit, but in regards to uh, like pediatric uh, vaccinations, and, I, and I'm asking the question because I'm, I'm interested. Um, now, if the COVID vaccine doesn't necessarily stop the spread, right? Which it doesn't then, stop it; it reduces it significantly, though. Okay. So yeah. it, that so pediatric vaccinations again, you have to go back to like what is the goal? Right. And a big part of the vaccination question for most. Uh, people really should be, am I in this for myself or am I in this for my community? Well, that comes down to almost any vaccination, right? Like when we're talking right. about, when we're talking about the flu vaccine, vaccine, right? Like, I mean, the chances that the flu vaccine happens to be the exact flu that goes around that year is minimal, though the chance, right. the chance that like you help minimize the spread to the elderly population or the in that case, the pediatric population, where they the the flu right. becomes deadly to those those populations. And so, all of us on this call, do we all have right. our kids vaccinated? Is that did you guys all get your kids vaccinated? Yes. What about you, Sean? What did you guys decide to do? Uh, we did. I mean, honestly, did I? I got my kids vaccinated, not necessarily for any altruistic reason, just because it would be easier for them. Yeah, well, and that's that's also a. a it's easier to get around and function uh, if you've been vaccinated. For for a lot of it, I mean, for at least for the past year, though, I think that at this point in society, we're kind of trending in the way of like, we are where we are. And like, I don't know, at least for the most part, um, we've kind of, I think, I, I think we've kind of moved on from showing proof of vaccination or showing 
or any of that. I did go to um, just recently. I went to um, we went and saw Hamilton this past weekend at the Bushnell, right? Like, and has per requirement. What's that? My sister-in-law was there. Uh, as you say, per per recommendation or per requirement from the director of the the musical, he required masks, which I have not worn a mask in an, any event in the past. I mean, I just got off a plane and like did not wear a mask, right? Like yeah. since since my trip to Florida in December, I have not worn a mask in a like group setting. Um, you know what was weird is so I wear a mask at work and I've you know I've been used to doing that for a while, but then Bill and the and the kids got COVID, um, and they had you know COVID a couple weeks ago, and I was wearing a mask again at the grocery store. I didn't get it, but it, it I got to be honest, it felt a little weird. It, and, and I remember when the mask mandate was removed, first walking into the grocery store without a mask oh, after weird. wearing one. And it, and it did. And it's funny because I wear them at work. So it's not it, it's not that big of a deal for me to wear a mask. I, I could not care, care less, but I'd walk into the grocery store and go, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing this again. <laughs> so yeah. and we had to and even I think Maeve, my youngest, had even thrown out some of her masks because it, she had to go someplace um, after she, you know, after she was better and I was having her ma wear a mask for a little while and she's like, I don't know where those are. I said, well, you better find them. Go dig them up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, had a fever a few weeks ago and of course you're like, well, is this, here we go around again. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, I basically locked myself in my office and kept working, but isolated myself and yeah, we're, we're in that cycle. It turned out that just she had a hand, foot, and mouth, uh, so it wasn't COVID. But oh, but that's oh. even oh, that's oh, that's we yeah, we cringe. We all we all been through yeah, that. That's miserable. It oh, was miserable. that sucks. Walk around with the sores on her feet. And, when yeah. we were when I was on um, the carrier during my second deployment, I actually met the ship right after uh, hand, foot, and mouth had like ripped through the ship, which you can picture a population of six thousand people living in a quarter mile freaking bunk situation, how fast yep. that can tear through. Yep. Yep. It's a, uh, it was incredibly unpleasant for her for about a week and a half. <laughs> and I, I just remember, I didn't want to catch it. I remember when my, when Shay had it, my daughter had it, she was, Oh God, I don't know, maybe six or seven. Oh yeah. I just, I didn't want to catch it. Like, I don't, I don't want that. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know where the conversation diverged, but yeah. Right. Contagious stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of this is personal choice, and yeah, you know, it, it 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 for me, like when I, you know, when I'm in the hospital, you know, we have we have special rooms and there are signs, and most of the time, unless you know someone's just walking in, but um, when when I'm in the ambulance, a lot of times it's really frustrating because we'll show up at somebody's house, and you know, we get a call for difficulty breathing. And then after we've been there, you know, for a while, well, yeah, everyone in the house has kind of been sick for, you know, about a week or so. We have fevers. And I'm like, in they didn't, you, you're just telling me now. You didn't tell dispatch. You're just, we've been in your house for, you know, 15 minutes because we have different protocols that we use. If we know, sure. uh, and, and, and they change all the time, but, you know, different protocol. If we know it's a, it's a house that's COVID positive, we're, we're all not going to go in there. You know, we have one of us go in and everyone's staying just different things that we do. So it, that's, do, that was frustrating for me. It what still do we is. Think, what do we think the percentage of population 
have been exposed or have had COVID now. Do we have any numbers on that, Josh? Do you know? Uh, we don't. And part of it is because it's hard to tell because there are enough people that are minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. Yeah. And right. with the introduction of the antigen tests and their wide availability, they're not near as good now with Omicron, but they were really good. Um, but lots and lots of people are testing at home and managing at home and not reporting it to anybody. Right. That's uh, what we did. I mean, the last the last round of COVID, yeah. um, the three of them have it. We didn't even call the doctor's office. There's no need to. Right. They, so from a public health perspective, like how many people have had it? I don't know. Lots. Most, probably. Um, especially if you roll in the... Um, if you change the question a little bit and ask how many people have antibodies to COVID, which would include everybody that's been vaccinated, um, you know, in Vermont, I'm guessing, you know, you're well into the 90 some percent. Mm. So I guess my question is now, as far as the um, percentage of population that would be at risk for uh, severe I mean, essentially death or severe hospitalization, right? Like now this is a, a kind of a morbid statement, but like most of those people have been eliminated from that population pool, right? Wouldn't that be the- No, not necessarily. Um, a lot of, uh, it, a big part of that demographic is just older folks. Right. Uh, and a lot of those uh, people don't go anywhere or do anything. Uh, so isolating is the way they live. Um, and then there is a uh, part of the population that has a poor immune system. And some of that is just a function of aging. Mm -hmm. And so every day, just by aging, some percentage of the population becomes relatively immunosuppressed. So there's always going to be some level of high risk. Now, it's not a huge number, um, but... I mean, you basically go into any nursing home, everybody in there is high risk, whether they've been vaccinated or not. And Josh, did you get COVID? Yes. Yeah, I, I think we, we all did. Had it in January. Uh, uh, kids brought it home from school. And I had it in February of 2020. And um, when I had it, they, they didn't know what it was, um, which was probably kind of nice because I would have been scared, you know, at that time. Had, had I known, um, and, and Bill made me go to the emergency room, which, I mean, I would not let him call 911. No one's calling 911 on me unless I'm, <laughs> unless I'm dead. Um, but, but yeah, so Bill made me go and, um, and I passed out in the, cause I would not let them use a wheelchair. I passed out in the door of the ED and they thought I was having a stroke and I was not having a stroke. <laughs> I could, they, I heard them call the stroke alert. I could see all the feet moving. I was like, Oh God. But still, even then, um, nobody, nobody was wearing masks and it was, it wasn't something that I was tested for at that time. And it was just a disease that was making people sick in China. I mean, even, and I did, um, I did go septic. Um, I got really sick. And, and still even then, uh, and I remember talking to my doctor afterwards, after I got better, we had had a month follow-up um, appointment and I said, I I've lost so much weight. I can't, I can't eat anything because I can't taste and I can't smell. And, and he and I, you know, talking and trying to figure this out and going, Hey, maybe it was, but still, you know, this is February of 2020. Yeah. Um, 
I was super sick. I mean, that was probably the most sick I've been. Um, like I, that, you know, kidney stones in childbirth were the only time I can remember, you know, and obviously this, you know, the car, the, you know, the bicycle crash trauma, but actually being sick. Um, that's the, that's the sickest I can ever remember being, but everybody else in the family. So Bill's had it twice. My kids have each had it once and mild. I mean, sort of like, you know, sort of like they had the flu. They weren't, you know, they weren't happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, especially but, uh, when you get it after you've been vaccinated. Yeah. The vaccine turns it into an annoyance. And, and I have to tell you when I got my vaccines, the first one, first one, I didn't feel good. The second one, I had a fever of 102 and it was for like a solid 24 hours. And then I woke up and it was gone. Did, you get, was, uh, did you get Moderna? I did. Yep. And Moderna my, fucked me up. Yeah. Times. And my booster, my booster made me sick as well. I wasn't as sick as the second vaccination, but it, it had me flattened yeah. where I was in bed. Um, but again, even as sick, as the vaccine made me, um, you know, I know people personally that have died. Um, and I've seen people die. I've worked on people as they're dying from COVID. So I'm thinking to myself, this still beats the alternative. And my exposure to this disease is super high. So I think that's probably why I didn't get it when, when my family got it, just cause I'm exposed all the time at this point. Um, but, um, it's still worth it. Even, yeah. you know, even as sick as it made me. Sure. Yeah, well, Moderna is a sledgehammer of a vaccine, but. Mm -hmm. Now, in regards to boosters, would you recommend if you've gotten the Moderna set for your initial vaccine and would you get Pfizer for your booster? Because I know they're, they're talked about. For, for the average individual, it, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah. Um, the 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 data that they're showing about, you know, it's better and it works. Um, we're starting to talk about a fraction of a percent. Yeah. Um, and so you can, you know, legitimately say, Oh, it's better to do this. Is it likely to make a difference in your day to day life? No. Um, so the, and I mean, that's the, the, so the, uh, that the second round of boosters, um, uh, that are approved, but not necessarily recommended. And, and people are, are getting all excited about it. Um, so I pulled the data and ran the math and in the town I lived in right now, if you just make assumptions that we have the, the normal number of people over age 65 and, uh, so on and so forth. Um, if you, if you gave everybody, uh, in, uh, our town, uh, a booster, uh, you would save like 0.83 people. Um, does it work? Yes. Does it make a big enough difference that I think we should be having a giant public health campaign and spending tons of money and effort? No. Um, That's interesting. The, is it, uh, um, but the vaccine is, you know, for an individual is low risk and low cost. If somebody wants it, I would never argue with them about it. Um, now when the, Omicron ones come available. Um, you know, would I recommend those? Definitely. I mean, just speaking as a manager, um, I cannot tell you what a giant pain in the ass the rolling callouts for COVID are. You know, get everybody in your family boosted because this is making my life a nightmare when you call in and you're like, I'm not coming to work today. Now, do we have a, a 
timetable, do you think? Or do you have any? I'm guessing this fall. This fall? Yeah, if I, when it's available for me, I, I do whatever um, the hospital or my service is offering. You know, it, it, I thought that I had to get, recently I had to get a chicken pox tighter. Is that right? Um, because they, they wanted to see, and that was, that was unusual. That was unusual to me, but I'm, I just sort of feel like I'm along for the ride and I work in multiple healthcare institutions. So when you hey. can, I would strongly recommend the shingles vaccine. I got shingles during COVID and it sucks. I've had shingles I, twice. It's so I remember, I remember Sean, you had it. It was when I was still in the hospital bed after the crash six years ago. Right. And, um, Bill hadn't had chicken box and you were about to come over and, and we sort of, and I was like, well, I, I've had chicken pox. I, I don't know. I don't really care. You know, it's not like you and I are going to be rubbing up against each other. I wasn't, I wasn't concerned. Um, and, and Bill said, he said, Meg, it's, again, I'm in a hospital bed with a, you know, shattered pelvis and back and all this stuff. And, and he said, just in case he goes, I don't know that much about shingles. He goes, I've never had chicken pox. He goes, might be better to just do that as a video chat. <laughs> so I think, but Bill got the shingles vaccine and, and, and Josh, I thought you weren't supposed to have the shingles vaccine if you had not had chicken pox, is that, is that right? Or did I get that mixed up? Uh, that is not something I have run into as a question in the past. Um, okay. Bill, cause Bill got really sick from his shingles vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, you know, he never had chicken pox. Why? Are you? And he's like, well, the doctor recommended that I get it because of his age or whatever. Um, yeah. I don't know that. So that makes sense to me that he got really sick because it was a new exposure. Right. Um, but um, I don't know about the recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I probably will add um, shingles on my list only because Sean, when you get it, I know how bad you suffer and notice the word I just used suffering. I, honestly, I, I'll be, I'll be <laughs> ongoing debate, Josh. I don't know if you've ever heard that suffering debate that Sean and yeah. I probably have every other podcast, but I'll be, I'll be 100% honest. I get like both, both times I've had it, I've had very, uh, mild symptoms. I get a small, small patch of a rash. Um, and I get fatigued for about maybe a week or two. I don't get like the overall like pain and soreness that like a lot of people get with it. Um, I get like a small, like literally I can tell you exactly how I got diagnosed. I went to meet Jesse for a run. Who's, who's a PA and a friend of ours. I went to meet him for a run and I was like, Oh man, like, I don't know if I like rolled over and like there was a spider in my bed or whatever, but like I had like, like what felt like spider bites and I couldn't see him on, on, on my back on this one side. And I was like, I've had this weird, like burning on like my left side, like, like where my like seatbelt, like if your seatbelt's rubbing against you for a long time. And he's like, he's like, Oh, let me see that. And he's like, Oh, you got shingles. And I was like, what? And like, I still went and like ran like that night with him and like, and I just kind of took it easy for a week and like felt kind of dragging, but you know, nothing crazy. And then, um, I got it again and I, they still won't give me the shingles vaccine because they say I'm too young. Yeah. Even though I've, even though I've had two How old exposures. are you supposed to be for shingles vaccine? That was over 50? 50 or 55 I, off the top of my head. I think they'll yeah. give it to you at like 
48 or 50 if you're high high probability if you've had shingles if, yeah. in the case so and then would i fall into the high probability just because i'm probably exposed to it more than more than average people from patients i've not heard it offered to healthcare providers especially okay it's just, it, yeah i it's never it's never come up from you know a recommendation to me so well cuz it's i mean it to catch it other than having it be like a breakdown of your system like it's it has to be yeah skin contact right so like you'd have to right. be yeah. and skin contact if you've had chicken pox etc is even still incredibly low risk right yeah when you get shingles it's chicken pox reactivating it's your old virus I have this memory of being a kid and we, um, we grew up in a very, very small town. Um, our school was kindergarten through eighth grade. So maybe there were, you know, on average, there's probably 30 kids in my class, you know, and same, same kids from kindergarten to eighth grade. And I can remember being in like first or second grade, me and one other boy being the only kids in our classroom. Everybody was out chicken pox and I didn't get it. Um, so, okay. Um, when I was 15, um, I, you know, I went to track practice, um, went over my best friend's house. We had a sleepover and she woke up the next day and had chicken pox. I was like, huh, okay. And then I got it. So, so I was 15 and I was so sick. I mean, I was covered head to toe. I remember yeah. I had him down my throat, had him in my mouth. Um, my mom, I remember my mom, I still won't drink any of these, but, um, it, I, I was drinking in shores just because I, it was the only thing I could swallow. It was um, it's a pretty bad memory as a 15 year old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't want to get. Well, I mean, in this day and age with the the chicken pox vaccine, uh, you don't see it anymore. Um, yeah. The uh, pediatricians are graduating from residency right now that have never seen chicken pox. Um, my kids, so, my kids never got it. So when when we moved from Austin. Um, back to Connecticut. So that would have been um, early 2000s. So um, my oldest was, gosh, going into kindergarten, first grade. But one of the vaccines that we had to get was chickenpox. And it threw me. I went, there's a chickenpox? Because <laughs> when I was in Austin, I, I, we didn't, you know, there, the, you know, there was never a call to get that. Um, so yeah, so it started you know, it started with my oldest and then, yeah, we just, I look at it this way. We've, we've had enough medical trauma in, in our family. And <laughs> if something is avoidable, why wouldn't, why, why wouldn't we try to avoid it? I just, again, because shit happens in life, you know, accidents happen to people and, and people get sick. It's just, but if, but if we can control something that's preventable, that's, that's just, at least for me, that's, that's common sense. Yeah. 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 You want to talk suffering one more time, Sean, or are we good with that one? No, I think we're A-OK, -okay. but uh, we've been, we've been talking for, I'm guessing yeah. about an hour and a half now. Sean, um, I have to tell you, I don't know if you saw this, but we got one review um, on Apple Podcasts, and I don't know who left us this review. I couldn't tell by their name. Um, I wish I had it open, but that you know, they were saying that they liked the podcast. But one of their favorite pieces 
was when you and I debated the word suffering and whether it was an appropriate word <laughs> word for for you to use in the, in the context that um, that you're using it. So I guess these silly little things that you and I bicker about are are entertaining other people. Would they side with? They didn't. They said that they just they just love to hear us go back and forth about it. They probably sided with me, but just didn't want to alienate you. The no, people, you no know. way they sided with you. Everyone <laughs> uses that word in regards well, to. Altruism. They do not. Not people that have not people that have endured true suffering. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, Josh, what <laughs> song are you taking us out with tonight? Uh, so I, I believe we settled on, uh, Banditos by the refreshments. That's, do you know why? So I, when I brought that up in the conversation, do you know why I brought that up? Do you remember? No, but actually, so my, uh, my wife and I had a conversation about this, uh, um, cause that's a connection for me. Um, and, uh, um, the, uh, uh, the conversation my wife and I, uh, had, basically uh, uh, revolved around uh, that you and I have spent uh, so much time together in the middle of the night, in the woods, in these miserable conditions and random places in the wilderness uh, that uh, um, we know all kinds of things about each other that uh, uh, you would never guess. So you played that, so, I, so at Superior, when you were pacing me and crewing me yeah. for the Superior 100, that was on a playlist that you played on like the last like last section that you're like, I'm just gonna play some music. And I thought it was like such a. I was like, wait, how do we get back to like 1994? What's what's going on? Like I'm like where did this where did this come from? And it was like it was so funny to me to like hear that song, like that very particular song, like, and I was in a very bad spot. So like. That every time I hear that song, I like think of like that, and I think of you breaking off like little pieces of like Stroop waffle and like feeding it to me. And I always like tell people like, <laughs> I was like, Josh fed me like a baby bird. He'd break off a little piece and he'd be like, eat this. Just you just have to eat this little crumb right here. Yep, yep. That was a brutal race. <laughs> yep. So. And that song uh, historically is. Uh, uh, a song that my wife and I listened to a lot when we were dating, which is how it made it onto my playlist. Yeah. So that's, that's where it was like, it was super funny that like, and I was like, I was like, Oh, that's, that's a song I always associate with Josh. Yep. Well, thank you, Josh, for coming on. Um, I don't think I've seen you in person for, for quite a while. Actually it was a year ago when, when Maeve fell off her mountain bike yes. uh, near your, near your that. ED. What's that? We need to fix that. Well, well, my daughter, as we close, my, my oldest, um, my 17 year old says, um, Maeve rides really fast on her bike. And, and I don't, I didn't believe her. I just thought that she thought her sister was, you know, going faster than her. And then I rode with Maeve on the bike, on the mountain bike. Maeve does not use brakes. Oh. Literally. She does not touch the brakes. She, she definitely gets that from her dad and, and not from me. Um, but yeah, that, that kid is fast on a mountain bike and, um, and she had a blast up at the mountain bike park in Killington. Um, she, she and Bill went there and, uh, Hey, I'll let the adrenaline junkies burn off their, burn off their steam. So I'll take us out, um, with your song. Thank you again. And, uh, I think I'll see you in person probably in September.
Yes. Good to see you guys. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Josh. Down to you want to go and we could talk it out over a cup of joe and you could look deep into my eyes like I was a supermodel. Uh-huh. You and me, baby, no one else we could trust We'll say nothing to no one, no how Or we bust and never crack a smile Or flinch or cry for nobody So I'll keep the pesos.